Well, this is it. We're finishing up the book of James today. We've uh, looked at several themes, three of which are trials, wisdom, and, and uh, wealth. We've looked at each of those, and, and James does an exceptional job of interweaving all of those pieces together. And so we're going to finish today as we've considered that our words matter. We already know that our actions matter, but indeed our words matter. What we say is actually what we do. Our speech is an inner is, is a reflection out to the world of what is already on the inside of our lives. You see, it's really easy for us to say that, yeah, I'm a Christian, and yet we don't look any different. The inner reality of, of growth and of change and becoming more like Jesus really doesn't characterize our lives. It doesn't characterize a life that is tethered to God. Instead, it's a life that revolves around all the cares that this world has. You really couldn't tell the difference between us and the world. And so James is at pains to say, don't live like that. You have been redeemed. You have been saved, not just from hell, but God has saved you so that you can be his representatives on earth. So don't be so self-centered to think, hey, I've got my ticket to heaven and I'm not going to worry about what happens out here. But James is saying, what you do will be a reflection of whether you're saved or not. If you look at the suffering in the world and your hearts are not cut, what we'll see here in a moment, James is going to say, you better check yourself. You better reconsider your salvation. If you look out at other people and you don't care. If what you say is not really what's on the inside. You see, God wants you to experience what freedom truly is. Not just this ephemeral, like, yeah, I'm saved. He wants you to experience what it feels like to let go of all of the sin that I just prayed a moment ago. That He wants to free you in space and time from the slavery that you and I are constantly at odds with and at risk of having in our lives. Last week we looked at James ended with uh, hearing James shine a flashlight down in the basements of our hearts. Remember that image that there are, there are monsters in our basement and, and James wants to say, how are you treating other people? Are there quarrels and are there fights among you? And he shows us that there's a tendency to use other people. And that tendency to use other people is because we have a distorted view of ourselves. If we think too highly of ourselves, then we use other people to get what we want because what we want is what most matters. But if we have too low a view of ourselves, then we're going to constantly be asking for people's approval. Am I doing this right? Am I good enough? And so James wants to free us from not just pushing our agenda and not clamoring after everybody else's approval. You see, we see in, in chapter 4, verse 13, he said this, Come now, you who think you're going to go into this town and make this profit and do this and do that. Remember, we saw that that stems from pride and us looking at other people as though we just want to use them to get what we want. I'm about ready to move because this uh, squeak. Is that squeaking bother you as much as it bothers me? Okay, well, I'm going to just do this. 
That's better. Then I'm just going to preach to this side of the room. Oh, that's good too. All right, great. It's getting worse. So, so now in chapter 5, I think this is better because I, I do kind of shift weight a little bit. This is, I like this. All right, good. So, so now in chapter 5, he's going to say, come now. So he's finishing up what he said in chapter 4, come now, right? So that's where we're going to continue our, and finish our time in James. James chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. And we're actually just going to be spending a majority of our time in the first 11 verses. So if, if you're like, if we're halfway through our time together, and you're like, uh, Matt, you're only on verse 10. Don't worry about it. We're just spending most of our time through the first 11 verses, okay? But let's look at the first six verses here. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. There are a few things that I want to point out, three things, in fact, that I want to point out just from these first six verses that I think are um, appropriate for us as a North American church to consider, not just us specifically as Christ the Redeemer, but the North American church in general, one of the wealthiest people in history. First, notice, and I think this is implicit in the text, but we can breeze right over it. First, there are wealthy people in the congregation. There are wealthy people in this congregation as well as poor people. You see, in an effort to shuttle more resources to those who don't have resources, a lot of times we can begin to think that people with money are the problem. But see, right here in James, James is talking to both those who are oppressors and those who are oppressed. They are in the church together, the wealthy and the poor. And James is not saying, hey, rich people, get out of here. Instead, he's trying to warn them. He's trying to explain to them that if they're not careful, their wealth will condemn them. The second thing that I think we need to notice here is that money, just like the people who have it, money is not the problem, is it? Again, this is implicit in the text. Money is not the problem. Money is not the root of all evil. You heard me right. Money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. And that's what James is getting at. The love of money. If you have two masters, you're going to only serve one. You're not going to serve two people. And so he says, the love of money. And so how we use money is all that matters. And so as we spoke about in chapter 2, if you remember this, several weeks ago, I said that money is like water. Money is like water, and when it flows as it was intended to do, what does water do? It provides nourishment. It provides life for other people. 
But if money is bottled up, what happens? If money, if, if money is bottled up, the same thing as if water is bottled up, it becomes a cesspool. It becomes putrid. It's not doing what God intended it to do. Water and money are meant to flow between you and me constantly. And this, this is what James is getting at. This is what James is going at in this entire paragraph. Look at verse 3. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you. And what will it do? It will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure. You have accumulated for yourself. You have laid up for yourself treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy. Remember, James's brother Jesus talked about this very thing in, in Matthew chapter 6. He says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. But what? Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And how do you do that? We're going to look at that in a moment. You see, our tendency in life, at least my tendency is, and I'm, my, my bet is, is that your tendency in life is to make sure that we've got ours. That, that we try to measure and hoard and keep everything to ourselves, So that we make sure that we are taken care of. So it's very self-centered. But what does the gospel do? The gospel reconfigures our lives so that I don't become the center of my wealth. You see, the gospel frees us up to build bigger barns to invite more people in. See, the indictment that Jesus gave to the guy who was building bigger barns is he said, you're building bigger barns just to store more of your wealth. The fact of the matter is, is that it's a good thing to build bigger barns, to invite and welcome more people. I mean, you see the lavishness of the gospel when, when you see this elaborate wedding that Jesus talks about, that this wedding feast, all this money has been spent on all this food. Why? To bless other people. Not just for the bride and bridegroom, but for other people. So why does Jesus tell us not to store up treasures on earth? The, the last verse, 621, of what I just quoted a moment ago. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So quite frankly, if your treasure is eaten up by moths and rust, your heart will be eaten up by moths and rust. It's clear that where your heart is, is where your God is where your ultimate love, where your satisfaction in life is, that's where your treasure is. And if you put it in security and in trying to accumulate more, it will be eaten up. Your heart will be eaten up. You see, how does metal rust? How is metal rust? It's not being used. Right? Remember I mentioned the wonderful car shows? I'm not going to use another illustration from that, but I could. But all these, all these cars have all this rust on them because they've been sitting and not being used for their purposes. When do clothes get eaten up by moths? When you put them in a closet and don't wear them and you store them up for that winter in 2025. Maybe one day you'll wear that sweater. That's when moth and rust 
destroy is when you store them up instead of using them for the appropriate purpose. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Look at verse 5. Verse 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. What's the purpose of food? Quite easily, food is meant to give us energy. And so what happens when we eat too much? When we eat too much, when we overindulge, what happens? We all know what happens. We get fat. And when we get fat and overindulgence, what happens? Our hearts get fattened too. Have you ever considered that? That being able to not say no to that makes you just feed that desire. And then every time you feed more desires, then you can't say no to more desires when they come. And so your heart gets dull. Your heart gets fat. And your heart doesn't function like it's supposed to function. The third thing I want us to notice here is that James is not simply encouraging those who have wealth and who have stored it up to just stop storing it up, does he? He warns them. He warns them. He says, If your life does not reflect the self-giving life of Jesus Christ, you have not truly tasted salvation in Jesus. Let me say that again. If your life does not reflect the self-giving life of Christ, and I'm not, again, merely talking about money. When we talked about money several weeks ago, it wasn't just about money, was it? It was about your time, your resources, your energy. What are you giving yourself to? Is it self-referential? Or is it other-centered? And so James is indicting us for using it on ourselves, on our hobbies, on, on trying to accumulate things so that we can be secure. So if our lives don't reflect the self-giving life of Jesus, then we need to consider maybe we've not really tasted the self-giving life of Christ. This doesn't mean that you don't struggle when you give money or time or energy. This doesn't mean that there's no payment or price or sacrifice. That doesn't mean that, oh, I really can't spend an hour doing this for someone else, but, but having the struggle is actually a good thing. It shows that you actually care enough to be like, I want to do this, but I can't, but I want to, but I can't. The problem is, and the worry ought to come, if you never struggle. That's where the problem should happen. That is, if you're presented with an opportunity to lay down your life and your priorities for someone else and you don't even think twice about it, that's what James is saying. That's the problem. You're self-indulgent, living in luxury. You're saying, I don't have time to take you to the grocery store. I don't have time to give you $5. I don't have time to do this or that. And so that's what James is saying is, if you're not even thinking twice about serving someone else, about laying down your life for someone, you might want to reconsider your salvation. You see, this is the fat heart that James talks about. And James is telling us to cut the fat heart out of our lives and to ask God to replace it with a heart that bleeds for other people. He wants to give us a new heart that feels and functions the way it's supposed to. Let's move on into the next paragraph here because James moves from this very harrowing rebuke to an implication. Verses 7 and 8. 
He says, Be patient, therefore, in light of this warning, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Be patient, therefore. You see, this is call, a call both to the wealthy oppressor and the one being oppressed. Why are they to be patient? Two times he tells them, the Lord is coming. The Lord is coming, verses 7 and 8. And so to the self-centered oppressor who is merely holding back wages from those he's oppressing, why is he doing that? Because he is thinking, hey, this is all that matters. This life is all that matters. I need to make sure I hit my bottom line. I need to make sure that I'm, I'm in the black here. And he's, he's thinking that all that matters is right now and that he's justified in holding back wages and say, hey, I'll pay you tomorrow maybe. And so James is saying, you better be careful. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is coming. And he reminds them that this world where moth and rust destroy is not all that there is. And that goes all the way back to James chapter 1. That this gorgeous flower that, that sprouts and blossoms and looks amazing, it too will wilt and die. So will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. If all the rich man is doing is, is pursuing his own selfish desires, it has no lasting value. Moth and rust will destroy it, and in the end will destroy him too. Because where his treasure is, there his heart will be also. And so, so to the oppressor, repent. Believe in Jesus. Use your wealth to bless others. And for those who are going through difficulties, who are being oppressed, he reminds them that the Lord is on his way. He's not far away. There will be a reckoning for all the wrong that is done in the world. It won't be swept under the rug, so all that, that is wrong will be made right. And all that seems to be wrong will be revealed for what it truly is. What do I mean by that? You see, as we saw last week, our interpretation of things is often what's wrong. Our interpretation of things is often self-referencing. This is bad because it causes me discomfort. That, that over there is not good because I don't understand it. See, we too many times interpret pain and suffering as though it is de facto not good. Even in our North American culture, there's, we have this belief of suffering that just even this past week I was texting James that I had to repent because my grass is not growing. Oh man, I'm suffering because I just got mud in my yard. Blah. Is that really bad? And consider all of the suffering and all of the pain that we have. What is it? At root, nine times out of ten, it's self-referencing. Man, I don't like that person. They cause me problems. I don't like them because they, what I say last week, they rub me the wrong way. And God says, I want that to happen. I want what's inside to come out. You see this in the, under the surface in verse, verse 9. Verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers. Do not grumble against one another. 
And see, when things are not going the way that we want them to go, what do we do? We grumble and we complain to others about others because we assume that others are the problem. Let me say it again. We grumble and complain to others about others because we assume others are the problem. And the problem, the common denominator, is probably you. It's probably that you are looking at the world as how it affects you. Have you ever considered that your heart is the problem? You see, even here, it would be really easy for the oppressed to simply complain against the oppressor, to, to look at one side of the congregation and say, yeah, you hear that? <laughs> and James says, stop, both of you, and realize that the Lord is at hand. What does James do? He points all of our eyes outside of our current situation And compares life to a harvest, a harvest of righteousness that we've looked at already. A harvest of righteousness that results in what? People pursuing peace together. We saw that in chapter 3. And James reminds both sides of this economic equation of wealthy and poor, oppressor and oppressed, that suffering affects us all. And so what he's doing is he's challenging them to be responsible for their own obedience. As I heard one podcast this week, she said, keep your eyes on your own math test. Stop looking around the room to see what everybody else is putting on their math test. You keep your eyes on your own paper and you are responsible for your own obedience. Stop looking to everybody else and saying, well, they need to do this. They need to treat me better. That gives you no right. No right to gossip and slander other people just because they need to treat you better. Keep your eyes on your own math test. And that's the challenge to us, isn't it? Because we want to make, we want to make sure that everyone knows that we're judge and jury over everybody else. That they need to get their stuff together because I know what that looks like. We imagine that we understand the entire cosmos and what God is doing in individual lives and then we replace God with our own judgment. But James doesn't let us do that, does he? He says that Jesus, the judge, standing at the door and knocking on your own heart. And what are you going to do about it? Don't worry about what your neighbor is going to do about it. What are you going to do about this judge that stands at your door? You see, the remedy for our lives, the remedy for our suffering and our pain in life is to realize that all of our interactions, whether it's somebody in the grocery store or somebody that you live with, all of those interactions have their orbit around Jesus. And how we treat other people in that orbit says everything of what we believe about Jesus. You see, it's not simply that something's coming, though, is it? See, James is also concerned about doing what's right right now. You remember back in chapter 1, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, as we're going through difficulties, we often want the lesson to be learned right now. 
All right, God, I got it. I got it. Thank you. Thank you. Can we get on with this now? I got the lesson learned. The suffering's done. I'm ready for this to be done. See, it's now reported that our attention span as a country is now down to eight seconds. Our attention span is now reported is down to eight seconds. We tap our phones around 2,617 times a day on average. Constantly looking, constantly flipping, constantly thinking. You know that the goldfish's attention span is? It's nine seconds. We have a shorter attention span than a goldfish. And we, we've forgotten that it takes nine months for you and I to be formed in our mother's womb. It takes nine months for us to be born. And we expect God to answer our struggles in nine seconds. You see, we don't like sitting and waiting in the suffering, do we? We don't like sitting and waiting when difficulties in life come. But brothers and sisters, difficulties in life are essential to our faith. We believe in a crucified God. We believe in a suffering servant. We believe in a high priest who laid down his life for us. And so James gives us two examples, doesn't he? He gives us the example of the prophets and of Job in verses 10 through 11. As an example, look at uh, verse 10 and 11. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. You see, we can oftentimes think that the prophets are just kind of standing outside of their context. But you need to realize, and you can see this in every call of the prophets, the Lord says, I'm sending you to a disobedient people who are hard-hearted, who will not listen to you. And you see Jeremiah crying, right? You see Isaiah saying, I'm speaking, but they are getting more hard-hearted. And then we even saw Moses in, in Numbers 11 earlier, right? That they were grumbling against Moses. Instead of grumbling back, what did Moses do? He sought the Lord's face. He realized that his interactions, his suffering that was coming to him from other people really had to do with him and God. He dealt with that for 40 years. He realized that he was becoming a stronger man of faith because of that dispute, because of that grumbling. 40 years, and we can't wait eight seconds. You see, Moses was convinced that God was able to do what he said he was going to do. And he put his faith in that, not in the fickleness of the people. He looked to God. It took the uh, great Russian novelist an estimated six to eight years, the, the Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy. He wrote War and Peace. I have not read it. I don't know if I ever will read it because it would probably take me that long to read it. Six to eight years to conceive of the idea, to write it, and then to rewrite it. Six to eight years. And what did he say? He said the two most powerful warriors in life are patience and time. You see, if you and I want to produce something great in our lives, it's going to take time. 
It's going to take a honing of skills. It's going to take an understanding that you and I depend on every breath from God. And until we get that right, then we don't really realize what pain and suffering is for. You see, we look at somebody who has scars on their back, and what do we do? We don't think that they're weak, do we? You don't see a, a, a Vietnam War veteran or somebody who's come back from war and they're, they're hurting and in pain, and you think, man, they're really weak. No, you think, what a powerful and strong person that went through that adversity and can live to tell the tale. That's what that pain and suffering is supposed to produce in us, is a reliance upon God and a strengthening of the fiber of our lives so that there is a rod of iron in our back. Because your trials, brothers and sisters, have a larger purpose than you. And that's what we're going to look at now in verse 11. Behold, we consider those blessed or happy who remained steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. You have seen the purpose of the Lord, compassionate and merciful. Remember what Job said at the end of his 42 chapters of his story of how all this adversity was brought into his life? What did, what did Job say? Chapter 42, verse 2, he says, I know that you, God, can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. What was God's purpose in Job's suffering? It was so that he would be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, you and I don't realize that struggle is inherent to the product. Learning to be steadfast and patient is the point. That's the point, is that God wants us to draw near to Him And how does Job conclude his struggle? He says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have seen you. That's what God wants in the struggling, in the pain, in the difficulty. He's not just stringing you along and putting a carrot up in front of you to play games with you. He's not playing games with you in your struggles and in your suffering and in your pain. He wants you to see Him you may have heard that He's faithful, but He wants to show you that He's faithful. He wants you to see Him as faithful. He wants you to know that He will, in fact, complete the good work that He started in your life to make you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But it only comes through struggle, through difficulty, through pain. He wants you to demonstrate that He is compassionate and merciful to those who will call on Him. But if you won't, he won't. You see, just as our muscles don't grow unless there's tension, you know, actually a muscle grows by getting torn, by getting stressed. That's the only way a muscle can grow. And if you don't use it, atrophy happens. Moth and rust destroy that muscle, essentially. And so God is wanting to take you and strengthen the fibers of your life to know that He is faithful. Have you ever considered the moth and the butterfly? You know, we've talked about them eating sweaters. Well, the moth and the butterfly, what do they do? They begin both as a caterpillar, 
They wrap themselves up in a cocoon, and then they sprout forth with wings. What would happen if you were to see a little moth or butterfly in a cocoon and it's struggling to get out of that cocoon? Would you let it struggle? Or would you slice open the cocoon and let it free? If you don't let that moth or butterfly struggle and you cut that cocoon open, you know what happens? Is that thing will never fly. Its wings will remain impotent to be able to do what God created them to do because it's in the struggle, it's in the getting out of the cocoon that its wings are strengthened so that it can actually fly. And so God wants to do the same thing in your life with your struggles, with your pain, that if you're in the midst of or that you were in the midst of or that are coming your way, God is using that to strengthen the fibers of your faith. Don't cut the cocoon and try to abort the process because you will never be what God created you to be because you aren't going through the struggle. And so then finally, what does this do in our lives? These are the last few verses. I just want to give you some bullet points here because essentially these last few verses can be summarized in that this ought to produce a humility in our lives. All of this, these these calls to repent and believe, the calls to not be an oppressor, to not forget that the Lord is at hand, this ought to all produce a humility in our lives, like the prophets, like Moses, like Job. And we ought to cry out to God for strength and help because in our own strength, you and I can't do this. We may try. We may try to cut out the fatty heart. But God says, I want to do that for you. Cry out to me. Seek my face. Know that the humble will see God. This is what James is ending with. We don't have time to go through these verses, but I'd encourage you to look at them in your own time. That Verse 12, that we want to align our words with our hearts and our actions, letting our yes be yes and our no be no. Don't live a life of hypocrisy is what he's saying. Rely on the Lord to change the inside of your heart. And so what do you do? You pray to God. And we praise God, verse 13. And then we are to enlist the prayers of others, verses 14 and 15. We, we ask others to help us, to be vulnerable enough to say, I don't have it together. My wings are in need of healing. We are to confess our shortcomings to each other, verse 16. We are to seek the one who gives rain and fruit in its season, verses 17 and 18. And then, because of what God has done in our lives, verses 19 and 20, we are to go and pursue other people. To go and love them in the strength that God supplies. This is the kind of church that I long to see and that by God's grace that we are seeing glimpses of every day. Is people that lay down their lives who realize that the struggle and the pain is part of the process to make you more like Jesus. If we follow a suffering service, if we, if we believe in a crucified God, why do we not think that we also will suffer? We also will be crucified and called to take up our crosses. The suffering produces the person that God created you to be. He knows exactly what you're going through. And He wants you to see Him 
Not just hear about him, but see him with your own eyes and to know that he's faithful. To know that he is capable and to know that he is happy and ready and willing to help those who call on him from a pure heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of life, for the gift of salvation, that you don't just leave us to ourselves, that you don't just say, do this, without then also giving us your spirit to do it. We pray, as we prayed earlier, that you would come by your spirit in fire and in strength and in a breath of life to come and to strengthen the hands and the weak knees of those who are needy this morning. To humble those who are confident in themselves and to look to you, the only true Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.